Hey folks, so this is actually episode 16 coming up. In the episode, I say 15, and I'm just clearing that up for any confusion. Thanks for listening so far, anybody out there. And this episode is part of a series I'm doing. So it's the art of coaching. So it's for other coaches um, and just for other people to get an idea of what it's like to, to work with an online coach. And speaking of working with a coach, so I do online health coaching myself. And with the new year coming up and people setting New Year's resolutions, I'm taking on new clients. So for anybody looking to get started on the right foot for the new year coming up, I'm taking on clients. So get in contact, DM me, and uh, we can set up a consultation. Without further ado, here comes episode 16, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to episode 15 of the Progression Health Podcast. I'm here with Dean McAloon. Dean, do you want to introduce yourself? Hey, Ross. Thank you for uh, having me on. I'll give you a little bit of an elevator pitch um, for anyone that doesn't know me. So uh, I am an online nutritionist working for Triage Method out of Ireland. Um, my background, I suppose, I was a personal trainer for two years I'm in the industry about five years and uh, three years ago, then I went and done my nutrition qualification, became a nutritionist, started working online with people mostly. Um, and then in July there, I started working with triage. So working like a, a, a non-line coaching company. There's six of us on the team. We have a number of different specialities. And we also do personal trainer and coach education as well as we, we, we have a member site for all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I'm, I work in the nutrition department with, uh, with my colleague, Brian, Brian Hengisa. I think he was on your podcast uh, recently. Um, and I suppose our specialities would be people that are looking to improve body composition, so fat loss, muscle gain, people to, looking to improve their relationship with food and their body image, and then also uh, athletes as well. So we would work with CrossFitters, we would work, we would work with GAA athletes, footballers, um, combat sport athletes, that type of thing. Um, and then obviously we, we work with general health habit formation and anything really surrounding the, the realms of nutrition. That's kind of what we do. But those three are the, are the main categories that we kind of work with. And, and what we're known for, I suppose, as well is the body composition, relationship with food and, and the athletic performance kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm from Monaghan originally, County Monaghan, uh, but I'm living in Dublin at the moment. Um, so I'm just waiting for Tony Hullihan to lock us down again and uh, make me want to move back to Monaghan. <laughs> but uh, we'll have to see how that goes. Um, but yeah, no, that's kind of my uh, that's kind of my origin story for uh, for for now. But uh, yeah, happy to be here and uh, have a good chat with you. Brilliant, yeah. So you do a lot of work with with triage. What's kind of the main difference, I suppose, from uh, pre to, to post triage in terms of like. Um, what, what's the kind of the service like? Yeah, so I suppose like, um, first of all, you have the team aspect of it, right? Because I'm, me and Brian are nutritionists. Um, Shane's actually recently become a nutritionist as well. Um, Gary is a physio and he's about to be a, he's going on to be a medical doctor. Nicola is a, is a medical doctor. Paddy is, is a wizard when it comes to biochemistry and everything in those kind of realms. So I suppose... The big, a big aspect of it is that if there is a client that is potentially more suited to the expertise of one of the other coaches, 
we can get advice from each other, or we can either switch that particular client over to a more suitable coach. Um, so there's that element of it. It's, it's a lot more expansive, whereas, you know, when I was on my own doing this, it was kind of, I was left to my own devices in a sense, right? Um, and then I suppose you just have, the lads have really nice systems in place. And um, we obviously have the, have the members hub, as I say, which is a kind of a conglomeration of videos um, on all different topics. We have a section for, for clients with regards to their training, nutrition, and lifestyle habits. And then we have a different section on the member site for coaches, which is more in-depth knowledge of the fundamentals of exercise and, and, and health and nutrition. Um, so it's nice to have all these different resources available to you. But in terms of the, the fundamental coaching that I do, it hasn't really changed. I, I would like to think that I have uh, maybe improved <laughs> slightly, hopefully, uh, as a coach, um, which is what I'm, what I'm always trying to do. But fundamentally, the process of developing strong relationships with my clients and getting them really good results, that, that has stayed largely the same. But for sure, um, it's, it's really nice to be part of a team because um, it, uh, when you're doing online coaching by yourself, it can be a bit of a, a lonely endeavor, shall we say. <laughs> Yeah, that, that sense of community is, is massive, especially in kind of like the digital age we're in where a lot of people are working from home. Um, so then in terms of, you know, we, we talked off air a little bit about like community and the importance of that. Uh, you know, let's say you have people listening who are like they're not really fully aware of the importance of community or the benefits you can get from it. Um, what, what do you think are some of like, you know, the, the biggest changes someone would notice going the health and fitness route alone as a client versus with, you know, all the different types of communities that are out there. So are you, what, can you just reword that? Sorry, is it kind of like, uh, are you asking about the difference between going to the gym solo versus maybe joining a community like CrossFit kind of thing? Something along those lines. Yeah, you know, the different types of, you know, strongman, powerlifting. Uh, sure, sure. Yeah, so, so I suppose my window into this is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because that's what I do. Um, but I, as we were talking off air, we we're talking about strongman, powerlifting, CrossFit. Um, and I definitely think that if you can integrate your exercise into a community and have that social element to it, it's going to be, number one, much easier for you to form the habit of going to the gym and getting your training in. The training is way more enjoyable. And you're also building relationships as well. You know, I think in the time of COVID, we have all become very much aware of the importance of human connection. I think when you're locked in your house, you can't meet anybody, you potentially can't see your family, you potentially can't see your friends. It was grand for about 10 days. And then we all decided, or then we all came to the realization that this is shite. Um, sorry, maybe I can't curse on your, on your podcast. Oh, good. Um, oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think the human connection and the social element of exercise is, is massive, you know, because um, like I, I know lads down at the gym, they the train jiu-jitsu and like they're there, they're there every single night. And, you know, one of my really good friends, like some of his best friends, that he that he has now the connections were formed in that gym um when he whenever he was training with them um and, and i would imagine that it's the same for for people 
um, that do CrossFit for people that are in the powerlifting community. One of our one of the triage coaches, Shane, is a powerlifter. Um, the powerlifting community seems to be a very close knit as well. I have another friend that, as we're saying, T off air. He's a strongman coach, and you know, like he's literally built a new business and a new gym and a whole bunch of new connections and a whole community just based off strongman training. Um, so this, this, it's, it is absolutely massive. Like, and as we were saying, like, you know, I actually do enjoy going to the gym by myself sometimes, you know, where I can just sort of throw the headphones on and get to work. Um, but I think for, for the average person, if you can bring that sort of social element to your training and make exercise a lot more fun, even if it's, even if like, I know this, what we've talked about is, is kind of martial arts and resistance training, but even like running clubs um, and, and tennis, football, you know, this is kind of why the guys, obviously the GAA, sorry, is, um, is so big as well, because it has that social community element and, and it's a lot more than just doing a bit of exercise, you know, um, and that can be very powerful, I think. Yeah, it can become more than just exercise. It can take on a whole new life. Do you have any absolutely sort of examples you can think of where that really came through for you? Like sort of, I don't know, maybe your motivation was low or you had an injury or, you know, you just for whatever reason, you weren't feeling like doing some exercise and the community aspect kind of like, you know, really paid off and, and sort of helped you to, uh, to stay consistent with your training. Hmm. Yeah, so I suppose, um, like, if I even think back to when I started going to the gym, um, which is nearly 10 years ago now, um, like, I wouldn't have had the confidence to go to the gym by myself. Um, so it was actually my friend that I said that opened the, that he's recently opened the, the gym and he does all the strongman style training in the competitions. I actually would go with him Um and he was, a, he was a lot bigger and stronger than me, still is. So, um, so Danny, if you're listening to this. <laughs> um, but I would go with him and, you know, that's obviously just one person, but he was always there to push me and he showed me how to train hard and we all always had good chats. And like, even to this day, like I would go to the gym with, my, with one of my mates um, to, to, to lift and then obviously I do jujitsu then, which, which is obviously a very, um, there's, there's a big social aspect to that. And I know like it's, although because like I've been training for so long and I do enjoy the training and I get all, I, I, I love the benefits from training. I do think that I would probably not be as inclined to train on certain days if I had to go by myself all the time. Like I think, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, but being in lockdown, I think one of the reasons that a lot of us didn't enjoy the home workouts was because it was like, I'm doing this by myself. It's in the hall or in the utility room or whatever it is. It's boring. The atmosphere is not there. You know, there's all the, all these elements of it that, that were previously a big part of it and made the experience more enjoyable and more uh, attractive to, to do and weren't there anymore. And, and that's a big part of forming a habit is, uh, making the behavior more attractive for you to engage in you know um so if a, if a lot of those check marks are not there you're less likely to to engage in, in it for sure like and I, I only have the benefit that i've been doing training and exercise for so long that i always i treat it like brushing my teeth you know i'm gonna train you know even if i'm in a if 
if I'm on a an island where there's no <laughs> where there's no gyms or anything like that, I'm still probably going to be doing push ups and pull ups and going for runs and stuff like that, just because you know I've been doing it that long. That it's such a strong habit. But for for anyone that's sort of trying to get into it more, um, if you can sort of have those extra elements, as we say, the, the social element, um, going to classes with people or with a, going to the gym with a friend or you know going running with someone or whatever it is anything to make the habit and the formation of a new habit more attractive um for you is, is going to be so much easier for you whenever you're trained to develop that kind of routine yeah how to change or form a new habits is like really difficult i think people they kind of underestimate how challenging it is and you know it sounds like a nightmare you know the lockdown where you're in the utility room limited equipment no community like you couldn't have any more barriers to that habit change so uh the community just like you mentioned there is like huge it can really pull you along you know even someone asking you you're going for a session you're kind of like oh, you feel a bit guilty like if you say no and you know you'll enjoy it so it's it can it yeah. can go a long way um so yeah with your coach you spoke there about like you know trying to consistently learn and improve uh is there anything that you've learned recently um and that you kind of have picked up on over the last couple of uh, couple of months in terms of uh, coaching or anything in particular like that. Yeah, so uh, I guess since you started with triage or uh, maybe over the lockdown, any kind of uh, updates you've you've made to your, your coaching service. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose like I, I've been kind of skimming over and almost relearning certain aspects i suppose i suppose the the coaching psychology stuff um has been something that i've been skimming over again so um going over things like motivational interviewing and i suppose the general communication skills that you develop where when you're when you're talking to clients you know because i think for me as a coach as we as we discussed kind of off air as well um developing that connection and having a strong sense of communication with your client is so, so important for them to get the results and also for you to be able to coach them properly. You know, I think when it comes to the majority of clients that I've had, if I can get a strong connection, if I can, if I can create a good line of communication with my clients, then the chances of results having fantastic results is dramatically improved. I think the, the, the handful of times that, that maybe I've had lackluster results with clients over the years has, has mostly been down to a breakdown of communication for whatever reason. As we said, maybe it's not the right time for that person to do coaching or maybe you know the personalities didn't click or whatever it is. But when it comes to coaching for me, communication is key. Because I, I said earlier, like with triage, it's, it's great if the resources you know, the systems in place are really nice. You have the members hub. Um, you have the other coaches to, to, um, to ask questions and potentially brainstorm things with. But I think when it comes down to getting great results with clients, it's, it's about having good conversations with them, asking them good questions. You know, this is kind of some of the, some of the tenets of motivational interviewing is not preaching at them, not uh, telling them what to do, but more so listening to them and uh, 
trying to open up a line of communication with them that allows them to be honest with you um, and makes them feel comfortable. Because I think if you can create a comfortable environment with a client and you can ask them questions that they feel happy to answer and sort of sometimes, as, as I'm sure you'll know, Ross, like when you're working with clients, it can be sometimes difficult to get the answers that you want because maybe they're, they're a little bit vague or they're unclear with certain things. Um, and a lot of that just comes down to asking the right questions. And as I say, creating that environment where they feel comfortable um, being honest with you. And I think working, just constantly working on, on, on those coaching skills, making the process client-centered. So John Brardy, um, he's, the, he's the creator of Precision Nutrition. Um, he talks about making the process client-centered and not coach-centered. So while you might be, you know, in quotation marks, we might be the experts, right? At the end of the day, it's, it's the person that you're coaching that is engaging in the habits and eating the food and doing the exercise and, and drinking the water and doing all these different types of things. They're the ones that's doing this at the end of the day. So you need to make it about them. You need to make sure that, it's, it's really all about them. And, and I, the analogy that I use is that when it comes to dealing with clients, I'm just a satellite navigator. You're the one driving the car, you know? Um, and if I can improve my abilities as a satellite navigator, if I can learn the maps on the road better, you know, and that's obviously part of that is learning the, the theory and the science. Another part of that is learning how to deal with different personalities. Another part of that is, again, developing those communication skills, asking the right questions, reflecting back at the clients, um, making sure that they know that they're in a comfortable environment and that they can be honest with me and that I'm not going to berate them <laughs> or, or uh, tell them that, they're, that, they're, uh, that they should be doing this and they should be doing that and that they're, you know, if they eat a bar of chocolate, you know, flying off the handle or any like thing like this, which a lot of people think coaches, some coaches are like that. If we can avoid those kinds of things and focus on, as I say, becoming a better satellite navigator, learning the maps and working with the client on that, uh, the results are going to be so much better. And I think that's one of the big things that I'm constantly working on because when it comes to, the, as I say, when it comes to the theory and the science, you know, the biochemistry and all that kind of stuff, that's really important, right? But I actually don't, there's only, there's a certain point, unless you're really working with elite, elite athletes, there's a certain point where it, you, you sort of get to diminishing returns um, with the theory type stuff. And, you know, it then becomes more of a case of, right, how can you communicate this properly? How can you get these ideas across to your clients so that they click and that they client goes away from a session or an email or a consultation and says, that makes so much sense to me. That really fits into my life, what I'm trying to do. I know exactly how I can go from point A where I am right now to point B, which is the goal that I'm trying to achieve or the habit that I'm trying to form. And I'm really happy with that. And I'm really satisfied with that. And that's super, super clear. And that's, that's kind of what I'm trying to get better at all the time because, you know, sure, learning all sorts of biochemical pathways I find that interesting. I find that cool. I'm sure you do to a certain degree. Do clients care about that? Not really. 
Not really. I think they care more about how you can get them from that point A to point B. And to me, that's all about communication skills and the coaching psychology and learning how to get those ideas into the, into the client's brain and mindset so that it clicks and then they can go off even when you're not there and do the things that they're supposed to do to make their life better. Yeah, communication skills. I think the older I get, the more I see that it's like, you know, the, the, the cost of miscommunication or just the value which you can have by being a good communicator. Uh, or just having, I feel as though even just sort of in a more vague way, it's like just good, like uh, personal kind of like human connection skills in a, in a broader sense, you know, like knowing when to communicate and when not uh, are invaluable. And uh, yeah, one of those techniques is motivational interviewing. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that and um, explain how it's kind of helped you with, with your culture? I know you already touched on it a little bit, but just in a bit more detail, because I feel it's kind of like a newer, relatively new technique to, to personal training. I know it's been around for a while. But... Sure, sure. Um, so motivational interviewing is a, it's a counseling style developed by um, uh, Rolnick. And I can't remember the, there's, there's, there's two guys, mainly that they were kind of the big uh, proponents of it. Rolnick was one of them. I can't think of the other guy's name. It's, it's, uh, it's slipping my mind at the moment. Um, but essentially, motivational er- interviewing, and I suppose what's called the spirit of motivational interviewing, is grounded in, in, a, lot, in a lot of what I said there. So um, developing that environment where the client feels comfortable and developing a certain amount of empathy with the client, having a, having acceptance of the client. That, that's really, really important because I know in my past, in my time as a personal trainer, I would have had this very rigid mindset where I'm the personal trainer and I know more than you and you're here because I am the person that can get you to where you want, want you to be. You, you want this information from me and I am the authority and da 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 da, da right? And that does work for some people, but most of the time, and the scientific literature actually backs this up, most of the time it doesn't work. Um, I think instead you need to have this environment with the client where it's a sort of a level playing ground, right? You accept them for the type of person that they are, no matter what, right? Because motivational interviewing, it started, um, it was initially brought up and developed for use with addictions. So people with drug addictions and, and, and alcohol addictions and, and these more, I suppose you would say extreme psychological um, psychological illnesses, shall we say, or, or um, impairments to, to, to one's life, more so than general habit formation and optimization of health, although it does fit beautifully into this realms because of kind of the, um, the spirit of motivational interviewing, which is, which as I say, is, is about that empathy and creating that uh, environment where the client feels like they are worthy, I suppose is, is a big one. Um, that the client feels accepted and, and that they feel comfortable. Um, so I suppose whenever I am having a, a discussion with a client that environment and that spirit of motivational interviewing is, is very, very important. And it's, it's always kind of at the top of my mind, because I said earlier about being a satellite navigator, that's kind of 
a big part of, of motivational interviewing. Now, there are three different styles that you can kind of go in. You can have a following style, a guiding style, or a directing style. So a following style is kind of more where you're kind of, you're just following the client. You're not really doing much. You're just sort of letting them sort of take control of the situation. The directing style is kind of more where you are kind of telling them what to do a little bit more. But most of the time, that guiding style, which is somewhere in between, is typically where a lot of clients are going to be going to have most of the benefits. And this is especially important for clients that are maybe a little bit unsure about change, you know, because when it comes to, say, for example, athletes, that directing style that I said about motivational interview or where you're kind of more just telling them the information and just giving them the facts and saying, right, this is what I think you should do. Now you should go and do it. Um, that works better with athletes because athletes are there. They want to know exactly what to do because it's like, if I do X, it's going to result in Y improvements to my performance, right? But for someone that's maybe a little bit more, I'm not sure about this, I'm confused, I don't know what's going on. They're a little bit ambivalent to changing their behavior. This is kind of where that guiding style of motivational interviewing becomes really important because I often find that, as I said earlier, when it comes to the theory and stuff like that, that's all nice and fancy. But when we take, for example, like eating better, right? Most people know how to do that already. They don't need to tell me about the polyphenolic content of broccoli and all this kind of stuff, right? You know, it's, that's not necessary information for them. Um, they already have the answers. They just need to be guided in a direction and be set up in an environment and a dialogue created where they feel comfortable speaking about speaking about these topics so that it moves them towards change. And that's kind of, as I say, that, that empathetic where you accept them for the, who they are and you're very open and curious about the, the whole process with them. That's kind of the spirit of motivational interviewing and that's what sort of guides the client to almost talk through the answers and talk through the change with you because they already kind of have them in, 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 in them, right? You're kind of like a mirror sometimes. You're just sort of reflecting back and sort of, as I say, as the satellite navigator, guiding them towards the answers that they kind of already have um, within them already. So that's kind of, I suppose it's a, a bit of a summary of motivational interviewing. There's a lot more to it, but that's kind of how I would think about it in, in my mind. Um, and kind of some of the things whenever I'm communicating with a client that is maybe a little bit unsure about change on how to move them from, okay, I'm not really sure about this to, okay, let's take action on this habit and let's start making some changes in, 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 in my life that's going to be positive. Moving from ambivalence to the change they want to make anyway, that's kind of the short, it's, it's interesting to hear someone else talk about it and I'm like, yeah, how can I, you know, think of it in my own words? And that's just the short answer. And yeah. I'm thinking you're really touching on like kind of psychology and mental health here as well. And then also I feel as though it's, it's one thing to talk about a technique like MI, but it's another thing to actually kind of see it or to use it. Um, so kind of out of curiosity, would you feel comfortable doing a quick little dialogue around MI? So I'm thinking of doing, so my ambivalence, for example, is I'm thinking of doing like a half marathon, but I'm kind of, I'm dragging my heels and, and Dean, you're the coach. Would you, would you feel comfortable doing a, a quick little MI uh, dialogue? Sure, sure. That's wrong. Cool, cool. So, yeah, I want to do a half marathon, but Thanksgiving's coming up, Christmas is coming up, you know. Okay, so the, uh, 
doing this marathon is important for you in some capacity. Can you tell me a little bit more about why that might be? What's, what's some of your motivations for doing this marathon? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, as a fellow coach like yourself, Dean, I know health and fitness isn't just the resistance training or for example, like jujitsu or running, it's, you know, it's all around. So even though I'm training in the gym regularly, I think it's good to have cardiovascular fitness as well. So, um, I'll have a more all-round base of fitness if I if I train up to doing the half marathon. Um, but I guess because I'm in the gym gym so often, it's a big change to go and, and run consistently. You know, it's kind of like I'm like a fish out of water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I suppose you you value the cardiovascular benefits from the marathon, and you see. That doing that would be would be beneficial for you overall, and you're the type of person that values their health, and you want to do this. But at the same time, you're also seeing that there are some obstacles in your way with regards to Thanksgiving, as you said, and and some of the other challenges around that. What can you think of any ideas yourself that might help you overcome some of these challenges? Have you got any plans potentially in place? I have some ideas myself, but, I, but I'd love to hear yours first before we kind of move forward. Yeah, so, you know, my knowledge of, of health and fitness is like, I'd like to think I'm pretty flexible. So like, even though it's, it's a half marathon, anything that improves my cardiovascular fitness, be it running, be it uh, even, for example, yoga that improves my like mobility or uh, anything at all will benefit the half marathon, especially as we talked about like habit formation. So, you know, I like basketball and basketball will improve my cardiovascular fitness. So, um, keeping a flexible approach to my weekly kind of, you know, total cardiovascular volume, we'll call it. And then yeah. also, uh, starting small. So like, uh, I hope to run, I think it's 13 miles, but I don't have to run 13 miles in week one. You know, I can run, uh, I could run three, four times and do 13 miles in week one for example, or maybe less, maybe more, and then, then build up over time. So a small plan would just be like starting, starting small, really, you know? Mm, mm. I think that's a great idea. I think you have a, a plan in place. Um, you know kind of what is required and you know, your, your knowledge on the topic is, is really, really good. Um, I potentially have, have a couple of points for you uh, if you're interested in, in hearing them. Sure. Yeah. As in, I haven't actually put the, the foot down to, to get going on it. So any, any, uh, any feedback would be cool. Sure. Sure. So I think what you said was, was really good. As we've mentioned, this is obviously important for you. You're uh, the type of person that values your, your health and you want to see those cardiovascular benefits. But I think what happens sometimes whenever we are trying to form new habits is we go a little bit too too hard, too fast, um, too quick, you know, and especially with regards to marathon training um, and running in general, it can be difficult sometimes to build up to it. And often, as I say, people jump into the into the waters a little bit too quickly and they, they end up with pains in their in their ankles and their knees. So what could potentially be a good idea would be to slowly incorporating some of the um some of these miles into your week. Just, just where you feel, right, okay, that's, 
certainly a time in the week that I could see myself running five miles, right? And plan that ahead, potentially. Put it into your diary, maybe incorporate it into your existing training schedule and, and see how you go. And if you can do that once or twice a week, say to yourself, right, okay, that's, that, that was a good week. And then review the situation at the end of every week and potentially start to add on more miles or more sessions until you feel comfortable with, uh, with, with the pace. Um, so what, what's your thoughts on, on, on that as, as an idea in terms of uh, implementing some more cardio and running style training into your, into your schedule? It honestly sounds very reasonable. You know, when you break it down like that and just set kind of like the barrier to entry very low, it's like, yeah, you know, I can do that. But I just have to, to modify the, uh, the workload to where I'm currently at. So, yeah, I feel as though not to it, but to do it now. I'll, we finish this call, I'll be running out the door. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, great. Yeah, that's great. great. Um, and then uh, I feel as though you're, you're talking about the psychology uh, aspect of your coaching, and you had uh, a post about male mental health, and I think that's very important. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. I think people are talking about mental health more, but you know, I don't think we talk about it enough, and I think talking is the foundation to kind of good mental health, whether it be you know, as we talked about off air with relationships with like uh, someone you trust, or even I know uh, you do a little bit of journaling as well. So it could be with yourself or yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that post and just the importance of mental health? So I have the book here, Act Daily Journal. Um, So I find that journaling is a great exercise because it's like it's self-directed therapy in a sense. Um, because what is therapy at its core? It's essentially you're talking through things with an individual that is, as I say, as we said earlier, with the motivational interviewing, guiding, guiding you through the process. Now, the thing about it is therapy is neither cheap nor readily available. Um, and that was kind of that, um, that, that post that you're talking about, that was with Jamie, uh, right? Um, we were just talking part of that podcast we were just talking about the lack of resources the, the lack of mental health resources specifically available to people in ireland and he's from northern ireland which is in the uk um so the issue is there as well um and i think for the average joe or someone that's maybe not not in a lot of pain when it comes to a mental illness if you are say for example somebody that just wants to keep in good mental health potentially you're dealing with a little bit of negative emotions or, you know, you're, you're, you're going through a tough time or something like that. You're not very, very deep into a mental illness where you would need that extra care from, from a psychologist or a psychotherapist or, or a doctor or whatever it may be, or you don't need pharmacological interventions from SSRIs or anything like this. If you're just somebody that's looking to keep mental health good, or if you are potentially in a negative place and you want to try and get yourself out of it, Journaling is a fantastic exercise that you can do because it's it's cheap and it's as I say it's like self you're 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 doing therapy on yourself in a sense by writing things in, on a journal. The only thing, the only concession I would have about journaling is because it's fine, but if you're just writing what you're thinking on a piece of paper, that's that's good until up until a certain point. And I find that using an act, a journal, or something that's guiding you through. Um, your thinking to me is a lot more effective. So ACT is another evidence-based um, 
it's another evidence-based therapy technique um, or style of therapy. So it's acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, and I've been using this journal and Brian has been using the journal as well. I got him one as well um, because it's from the, another podcast. Um, I know we're, we're talking about loads of different podcasts on your podcast, uh, but it's from Psychologists Off the Clock, uh, which is a podcast where psychologists are running it. And I was listening to it one day and, and I picked up the journal because I thought that sounds really, really interesting because ACT as a therapy is evidence-based and it's very effective. And as I was saying earlier, it's great because every week you go through a different aspect of ACT and, and we'll not maybe we'll not talk about that too much because, well, number one, it's not my area of expertise, but it's, it's also, it's a, it's a big topic as well. It's probably a, a podcast for, for another day, but each, each week you go through an aspect of ACT and ACT is essentially the, one of the biggest tenets of it is you're trying to develop psychological flexibility in your mindset. So that is where you are essentially becoming more flexible around the way you approach your thoughts and your emotions and consequently your behavior. Um, and the ACT Daily Journal helps you with this because there's, different, there's six different components typically of, of psychological flexibility. And each week you, you work on and you journal and you essentially write down about one element of psychological flexibility. So using diffusion as an, as an example is, is one aspect. So this is where you're kind of diffusing from negative thoughts and emotions because when it comes to issues with our mental health and problems with negative thoughts and negative emotions, what often happens is we get fused, you know, it's, it's almost like we can't, they've almost like got their claws kind of hooked. These thoughts and these emotions have their claws hooked into us um, and we're fused to them. And, and it's very difficult often for us to create distance from these thoughts. Um, and diffusion is essentially a technique and act where you are engaging in exercise that allows you to see thoughts and emotions for what they are. They're just thoughts and emotions. They actually have no bearing on reality unless, of course, you let them have bearing on reality, unless, of course, you let them intrude into your life and affect you and, and stop you from living a good life in a sense, right? So some of the techniques, may, maybe for, as an example, you have, an, you have a negative thought, say, uh, I'm fat, I'm useless, I'm stupid, I'm not a nice person, I'm, nobody's going to love me, right? So these are all kind of thoughts that we might have. What you do is you, you might write that thought down and you'd examine it. And then on another page, you would write the thought backwards with, a, with your, with your non-dominant hand, right? And what this essentially does is it essentially allows you to look at the thought and almost bring this sort of silliness into it. You know, look at how silly that thought is. You wrote it backwards. Like, that's stupid, right? Or another one might be you imagine the thought um, on a television screen inside a, inside a, a set like the Simps or the friends or, or a TV show like the Simpsons where Homer is say, for example, he's like shouting the thought at you. It's like, Oh, you're so stupid. You're so fat. You know, nobody likes you. And it's like, it, it sort of makes a bit of a joke of it and sort of allows you to diffuse from the thought and see it for what it is. It's just a thought. It doesn't actually have any bearing on reality. And oftentimes they are silly and they are oftentimes exaggerated as well, because we, we do, as humans tend to live in the extremes of things. 
Um, and this is obviously a problem whenever we sort of become fused to these thoughts. So essentially, that's just an exercise, one of many, many different exercises in this book, um, in this journal, that allows you to take a step back, look at your thoughts and emotions, journal about them a little bit, create that distance, and develop these psychological tools in your psychological toolbox to regulate your emotions and regulate your thoughts so that you're not too caught up in them and allows you to bring your mindset and your mental health to a place where you feel a little bit more comfortable. And while ACT is not about and ACT and I suppose therapy and, and psychotherapy as a whole, as, as far as I understand it from a nutritionist perspective, by the way, <laughs> is um, it's not about locking up negative emotions and, and thoughts about yourself. It's not about that at all. It's about, as we said earlier, when we're talking about motivational interviewing, accepting them. We're going to have these negative thoughts. They're part of life. They're actually an important mechanism in our survival. You know, um, whenever we think back to our ancestors, uh, having anxiety about something probably saved our ancestors from getting eaten by a lion or, or killed by a, by a warring tribe or a, an oppositional tribe or whatever it may be. Having anxiety and having some of these negative emotions were, were survival mechanisms. And that was great back then. But now in our modern society, they're starting to work against us a little bit. So having these tools like, the, like journaling or having these techniques that we can take from ACT or CBT or, or whatever type of uh, school of therapy that you're, that you're, that you're um, taking things from, having these tools in our toolbox can be very, very useful. Um, and I think it's important for not just people that are struggling with mental illness, but also something, it's also something that people that are just, you know, normal people in a sense, or people that are not necessarily dealing with mental illness. Um, sorry, I shouldn't say normal people, but um, people that are sort of just wanting to keep their mental health in a good place. I think it's important for us to do this work because as I say, life is all about troughs and valleys. Um, there's going to be ups and downs and having these tools in your toolbox and having these techniques is, is very, very important. And um, I think it can be, can be a real game changer for you. And it has been for me, definitely. Um, as I'm sort of, as I sort of go through this strange experience that we call life <laughs> and go on this quest for, um, for, you know, just leading as best a life as possible and, and trying to achieve a, a version of ourselves that, uh, that we would be, that our family will hopefully remember um, in, in, a, in a proud and happy sense, you know? Absolutely. No doubt you are. And uh, thinking of people's kind of health journey and tying it back into maybe someone who's listening or just elaborating a little bit more, it's like, why would being able to accept things and commit to things be useful for someone's like physical health? You know, it's great to, you know, have a nice kind of clear head, you know, and, and a clear frame of mind. But what would you notice with maybe your, your eating patterns, nutrition, exercise patterns and your physical activity by prioritizing uh, your, your, your mental health in the ways you've talked about and then maybe learning a little bit about uh, ACT? Sure. So I suppose like, you know, it's, it's all connected really. Um, a lot of people think that physical health is divorced from the psychological and that's absolutely not true. 
Um, I think one of the things that a lot of people don't understand is a lot of the issues that we have um, in modern day, even things like pain, a lot, a lot of people that are kind of in the therapies, uh, the physical therapies sphere will kind of think, right, if I just give you this corrective exercise, you'll, um, your pain will be fixed. And that's very one dimensional, you know, um, I think Gary would be the person that you should talk about this more, but this is my understanding of it in that pain is a lot more than just what's happening from a biological physical sense. It's actually the biopsychosocial model is actually what's going to be a lot more conducive to the treatment of pain as an example. Um, but kind of back to your question in terms of like, I feel that the um, working on your mental health and keeping it in a good place is has to be integrated with all the rest of your other health habits because let's say for example you know earlier we were talking about um we were talking about what motivates you to to go to the gym or exercise and we were talking about that community element of it so we're talking that's that's a social element right of this biopsychosocial model that's social right so if we were to take that away then maybe you stop going to the gym and then maybe there's a lot of health detriments that come along with that because you're not exercising. You're not doing your resistance training. You're not doing your cardio. And then maybe you're the type of person, which I'm sure you've, you've, you've seen before, that there is a type of person that if they don't exercise, they're like, well, if I'm not exercising, what's the point of me eating? Well, sure, no point. I'll just, I'll just start eating junk food again. And then maybe that leads to them staying up really late um, and getting poor sleep quality. So it kind of goes into this, sort of structure where everything is connected, right? And again, another example would be, let's say, for example, I don't do this kind of work where I'm keeping my mental health in a good place and a stressful event happens to me, something that makes it very difficult for me to regulate my emotions and, and my thoughts. And maybe I get so caught up in my emotions and I'm ruminating on all these thoughts and I'm sort of having all these having this really negative experience so much so that I, that I just sort of retract and become this social recluse where I never leave my house. I stop going to the gym. I only eat takeaways. Um, I, I don't meet anybody. And it sort of comes this perfect storm of negativity that started from the aspect of this stressful event ha happened to me and I wasn't able to regulate my emotions. And then that caused me to sort of retract into myself and stop going to the gym, stop meeting people, stop eating well, you know, and it, it sort of snowballed in, in, in a negative sense because I'm, I'm a big believer in momentum. I think if you, if you can build momentum um, positively, you know, if you, if you can start sleeping better, it becomes a lot easier for you to eat better and exercise. And, you know, it's all, it's all connected in a sense, but the opposite is true as well. If you let that momentum build too much the other way, because of say a negative stressful event, it can sort of leave you down a path where your overall health is, is, is affected. And this all started from a psychological um, problem, you know? So that's why I think this stuff is important. And, and that's why, that's how I think of it in terms of, um, how it relates to, to our physical health habits. So hopefully that answered your question. <laughs>
it's, it's like a domino or just a kind of maybe like a, I don't know, I don't want to kind of pathologize, pathologize it, but like, you know, it's kind of like a, a deck of cards, you know, tower of cards or, or Jenga or something. If you take out the, the mental health block, the whole foundation, and it is the foundation, like, so it could be very shaky. And if a stressful event comes along, it could be uh, setting you back a lot and losing a lot of momentum. And momentum is, is huge as well. You know, you kind of get like almost um, doing things automatically, you know, where things seem easy. And that's that's a great place to be in. And uh, tying it back into your kind of most of your work now, like kind of pivoting a little bit, uh, your nutrition work. And another post you had was about uh, protein and um it's 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 crazy that the longer you're in the industry, the more it becomes ingrained in that the protein's important. But for whatever reason, there's kind of like a disconnect with the general population. So uh your your post is about like five ways to get in more protein. What um can you tell us about that and the importance of protein? And especially I think, you know, as we age, the importance of protein. Hmm. Yeah. So I suppose like if we take a look at the RDA for protein, which is 0.8 grams. Per, per kilogram of body weight. That is, a lot of people sort of like think of that and say, right, okay, I'm getting enough protein. But the RDA, the recommended daily allowance, is simply the limit that they set so that if you, the RDA is more so, think of it this way, right? If you go below the RDA, bad things start to happen to you, right? Physical detriments to your body will start to um, start to rear their ugly head in a sense, right? So that's really just like you need at least 0 0.8 um, grams of pro uh, grams protein per, per kilogram body weight. Going below that, that's where you start to start problems start to occur. So that's not the RDA is not health optimization, right? To me and to anyone that cares about building muscle <laughs> and and uh, generally keeping their body healthy. I would be more inclined to go towards double the RDA at least, right? 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. And that's kind of like, I generally don't go, go below that only in very particular circumstances, potentially with, um, with, with athletes or something like that. That's, that's uh, they, they need to reduce their protein intake for, for, for specific reasons. Um, but when it comes to, getting enough protein, like there's obviously muscle mass, muscle maintenance, muscle development. Um, and as, as you said, it's important for, for the elderly population as they age, they need protein as well. So protein is important for that. There's so many pro biochemical processes in your body that require protein, you know? Um, so if you're not getting enough, you're, you're, you're going to be you're going to be leaving yourself potentially in, a, in an immunocompromised position. So protein, getting enough protein is a big part of, of keeping your immune system where it needs to be. Um, and, you know, even just for your hair, your scare, or sorry, your, your hair and your skin and your nails, um, you need protein. So protein is really important for a lot of things, but I think, especially as you said, as you said there about um, for people as they get a little bit older. Um, so one of my good friends, Richie Kerwin, he is doing his PhD in sarcopenia. So sarcopenia is where as you age, you start to lose muscle mass. And this is a major problem for, for, for people as they age, because if you lose muscle mass, you lose muscle strength, it opens up more of an opportunity for you to get hip fractures and stuff like that. 
And the unfortunate reality, the unfortunate reality of it is for, for elderly people, what happens sometimes is, and I've seen, like I've actually seen this in my local community and it's, it's in the research as well, of course, that people, an older person, potentially they lose muscle function, muscle loss, they have a fall, they fracture their hip, they go into hospital and they get a bug and it kills them, right? And this is all stemmed from you didn't have enough muscle, right? Um, so protein is really, really important for, for everyone at every age, right? Um, but especially that elderly population, um, I, I think is really, really important. I think if you, if, I don't know if you've had Richie on before, but uh, you have had Richie on, have you? Yeah, yes. he was on so, yeah. Brilliant. So I, I don't need to go into, to, to go into that anymore because he is, is much smarter than me <laughs> and he knows a lot more about, uh, about that because it's his area of expertise. Um, but yeah, like I suppose the key takeaway from it is protein is really, really important, not just for muscle mass um, development, which is kind of what people think. It's like protein bodybuilders, Aaron Schwarzenegger, you know, um, which it is, of course, you know, and I, I love muscle, building muscle as much as anybody else, um, as much as any other 26-year-old male. <laughs> but um, there is a lot more to protein than just that. And I think it is important to consider the fact the RDA is really just the limit that you should not go under um, in terms of negative detriments to your health becoming apparent. Um, and that's kind of why like, we, we always talk about like getting enough protein in terms of a heuristic that you can follow. So a uh, uh, a framework that you can follow in terms of structuring, 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 sorry, I can't speak, structuring your nutrition uh, is to think about protein first. So if you're making a meal, protein first, and then some sort of uh, plants added to that, vegetables, fruit, et cetera. Um, because I think that's where kind of people get a little bit bogged down in ideas on how to increase their protein intake. Um, because a lot of people don't know what foods are high in protein, or maybe they've heard that you shouldn't eat this or you shouldn't eat that because a lot of the foods that are high in protein, eggs, dairy, meat, they come along with a lot of myths surrounding them because people think I can't eat dairy because inflammation, uh, I can't eat eggs because cholesterol, I can't eat meat because heart disease, you know, so it's like, whereas some of these other foods are, are a little bit more people are like, right, I think everyone apart from the carnivore community can, can agree that vegetables are pretty damn good for us. So, this is kind of where people get bogged in in, in um, getting enough protein. But that's why I think, you know, made that post about, about getting more protein and five ways to get more protein in your diet, because it is really, really important. And I think the more ideas that you have around developing recipes that are high in protein or easy ways to get protein in, and as we said, as we were talking about earlier, making the habit easy and attractive to, to engage in, um, the easier, the less barriers you have to entry for this, the easier it is for you to, for you to be able to include this into your overall diet and, and thus get the benefits from it, from both the health, but also from a muscle function and performance perspective as well. Having a plan when it comes to protein goes a long way. I like that one, uh, protein first when, when you're yeah. having a meal. So Absolutely. in terms of plans, I know fat loss is a big goal of a lot of people with apparent life. Uh, state of uh, of health in general population but you had a, a, another post about uh, what about after the fat loss diet so like let's say someone goes on a fat loss diet and they're like right you know they're stopping you know whether it would be good or bad or what you know whatever way it went um mm -hmm. 
Can you talk to us a little bit about after after a dieting period and uh, a plan you can put in place? Sure, sure. So I think, you know, you see these transformations on Instagram and, you know, they're great. People do these 12-week fat loss phases. And I'm not one of these coaches that say, like, you know, six-week fat loss challenges are useless. I, I don't take that stance on them. I think that if they're executed well and there's good habits built into a program like that, there is absolutely utility for them. And I think they can be very, very good to get someone started. Um, but the key there is it's just a start, right? Um, and I think the problem is what, what happens is people will do a fat loss phase and they might you know, restrict a lot of things in their diet. Uh, alcohol and, and sweets and all these different types of things. And they're in, they're in fat loss mode for six, eight, 12, 16 weeks, whatever it is. They get the result. They might get the transformation picture. They might get a pat on the back from their coach, say, well done. You've done exactly as I say. And then what happens is they're like, right, what do I do next? And then it's like, they don't really know. They don't have anything to think about. The, the, they go from fat loss, which in their brain is now off. What happens is, because that goal of losing fat is so can be so motivating and so intrinsically motivating because you're seeing the results quite quickly, what happens is they, that switch goes off in their brain and they start to return to their old habits. Maybe they stop doing as much exercise or cardio or steps or whatever it is. Maybe they start including a little bit more, um, a little bit more processed food in their diet. Maybe, they, uh, maybe they're just not interested, as interested in the process. And for a certain type of person, that might, that might actually be good because if they're, if they're implementing a very restrictive approach, they're maybe doing an enormous amount of steps or cardio or they've massively restricted their diet. It might actually be a good thing for them to get back to a more balanced, inclusive type of approach. But I think for someone that really cares about body composition and wants to avoid this kind of rebound when it comes to um, the post fat loss phase, I think it's important to set exciting goals straight away, right? Because as I said, fat loss is intrinsically motivating. And if you get to the end of a fat loss phase and you don't have any other continuous, continual goals, then it's very easy for you to, re to return to some old habits potentially. That, that leads you again to putting a lot of the weight back on, a lot of the fat back on that you may not want on. Some fat will be gained after a fat loss phase, even if you do, uh, even if you go back to maintenance calories and, and do it correctly. But I think first thing you should do is, right, what's next? Um, do I have a fitness goal? Do I have a muscle building goal? I think oftentimes people that care about their body composition should also care about developing some level of muscularity as well. So if you're a beginner intermediate, if you're doing, if you've done a fat loss phase successfully and you're kind of happy with your end point, then it's logical to think, right? Okay. Then you must have a body composition goal overall. One side of the coin is fat loss, but the other side of the coin is muscle building and muscularity. So if you get to the end of the fat loss phase immediately, or even before the fat loss phase is done, have a discussion with your coach. If you have one, about, right, I want to do a muscle building phase. How can I do this? And I think when you, when you have that goal set, and you have, even, even if it's a cardio goal, even if it's not a muscle building goal, it's a fitness goal, a marathon, Ironman, whatever it is, um, 
make sure you just you're you're setting things up next. What's the next thing? Because if you don't, you sort of leave yourself in this valley of disappointment or, or despair or not knowing really what to do next. Um, and it's important to set that goal, uh, that the next thing essentially to keep you keep you moving, to keep you motivated, to keep you engaged in the process of developing good healthy habits, healthy nutrition, exercise, etc. Right. That's I suppose from a more abstract goal setting psychological end of things. Next thing then is actually right. What do you do with your nutrition? And I don't really like reverse dieting. I think it elongates a process that's already done and dusted. So reverse dieting for anyone that doesn't know is if you have been dieting for a certain amount of time and you kind of get to, you know, you've been eating low calories, maybe you're, you you started on 2,500 and now you're down at like 1600 calories or something like that at the end of the fat loss phase, reverse dieting is where you would basically tack on 150 to 200 calories every week. And you're sort of building yourself back up to the 2,500 maintenance. Um, Whereas I'm not a fan of that because you're still kind of dieting. And it's just like, right, prolong this, this issue. I think it's better for the vast majority of people, unless they really like reverse dieting and they find it useful, is to just throw them back up to maintenance as, as quickly as possible. Now, another important to note is your, your maintenance when you started your fat loss phase is not the same as your maintenance whenever you ended your fat loss phase because you have something that, that's called metabolic adaptation that, that occurs where your metabolism is essentially adapted. To, to the lower calories that you've been consuming. Now, it will come back to itself as you sort of go back up in weight. Your metabolism will upregulate in a sense. But essentially, you need to sort of take that into account. It, it might be 10 or 15% of your maintenance from when you started. So bring your, bring your calories back up to maintenance as quickly as possible. The reason that I do this is because you want the performance benefits. You want the benefits to your energy levels. If you're at the end of the fat loss phase, you're probably going to be dealing with more hunger you're probably going to be dealing, dealing with more cravings. You're probably, as I say, low on energy. Your sex drive might be lower. So you want to get all these things back to where they should be as quickly as possible. And that's why I kind of think reverse dating, I'm not a big fan of it because you want to sort of rebound back to a place of health as quickly as you possibly can. And then you'd be monitoring your weight over, over the course of two or three weeks so that you're not overdoing it or potentially underdoing it. Because I know some people, they can it can be difficult for them to, uh, to unhook from calorie deficit and being in a fat loss phase. And then you would stay there for a little while and sort of maintain things and, and let your glycogen stores fill up and, and sort of enjoy the benefits of eating more calories again while also being lean. And then you would start to progress into your muscle building phase or, or your marathon or whatever it is that you've set as your goal next. So that's kind of the, from an abstract sense in terms of goal setting, and then also from the sense of uh, what you actually do with your diet and your calories um, after the fat loss phase. Now that's kind of just, obviously just, I've been talking there for five minutes, there's a lot more that goes into it like, than that, but that's kind of the starting point that, that, that I look for um, in terms of the post-fat loss phase uh, period. So hopefully that was helpful in some capacity. I love the, the what's next part because there's no destination really. Like, you know, you might lose five pounds, 10 pounds and think you've arrived, but you, you never arrive, you know, it's, uh, your health is constantly a journey. So that's a really useful way to look at it and say, what's next. So final question quickly, I know we're conscious of time. Um, so coming up to the, the holiday period, I know it's common that people gain weight over Thanksgiving and over Christmas, notorious for that. What do you think of the idea of people setting out the goal to maintain their weight across this time? Do you think it's realistic? Do you think it's reasonable? Would you have any counter goals or ideas? This is a really nice segue from your previous question, but fat loss. 
So, as I say, there's going to be a certain amount of weight gain that's going to occur after you're finished with the fat loss phase. This is normal. And I would actually think, I would, I would make the argument that this is good for a lot of people. And you shouldn't get annoyed if this happens to you. A certain amount. Obviously, if you, like, if you lose 20 pounds and you regain 18, then that's probably not, <laughs> you know, maybe you've overdone it a little bit there. Um, but a little bit of weight gain is inevitable and is important for getting your body functioning again properly, right? Because your body doesn't want to be super lean, right? I, I always have, I have had this discussion recently with a few friends or one friend in particular. And I said to him, the thing, big thing that I said to him was being very lean is, is it's like going on holidays. You just visit it. You're only visiting that place, right? You do not spend your life there, right? Because if you do, you're going to be very, very miserable. So how this relates then to the holiday period, if you look at across a year, most people have a weight that they kind of cycle up and down from, right? So there's going to be a spike at holidays like Christmas because there's more eating and drinking and stuff like that. And then a lot of people will try and take it off whenever it comes to New Year's and stuff like that. But I think it's not a good idea to try. It's definitely not a good idea to try and lose fat over Christmas because that's, that's just, you know, you're, you're, you're really making the, the experience very, very challenging for yourself because the food environment is so different, right? But I think outside of that, we should accept the fact that weight gain will occur to some degree. Yes, you can do some damage control. And I think that you shouldn't take the stance in a similar way. You shouldn't just take the stance that I'm just going to eat junk food for the entirety of December and not do any exercise. I think if you really care about your health and you, you have that as one of your values, you should still absolutely be training as much as, as much as you like and as much as you feel is beneficial to you. Um, like I train on Christmas day last, the last, yeah, actually last Christmas, um, I, I did jiu-jitsu with one of my friends on Christmas day and it was great because it's like, it's, it was a really nice way to, to, to set up the day where, you know, obviously you're going to be drinking and, and eating a lot more after that. But, you know, I suppose it's about taking that middle ground, um, where you accept the fact that weight gain is going to occur and that you shouldn't deny yourself of the full enjoyment of Christmas and of the, the festivities, again, the psychological and the social element of Christmas and enjoying the experience with your family. Don't that's, you can't deny yourself that like, that's outrageous to be doing that in the pursuit of a fat loss goal. Right. Um, but in the same, at the same token, if you value your health and your body composition and all, and all this, just when you see December 1st, don't go mad. Or even if it's, you know, some people generally have a kind of a, a week or a 10 day period in or around Christmas where they kind of start to let things loosen up a little bit. But still kind of keep in mind that, right, I don't want to have an enormous amount of work for myself whenever it comes to January, but I do want to still enjoy Christmas. And this is kind of where this middle ground comes in, where you sort of accept the fact that weight gain is going to occur, but you can do many different things by again, keeping your exercise habits up as long as possible and not going absolutely crazy whenever it comes to Christmas in terms of alcohol and, and sweets and all this different types of things. Because me and Brian has done, we did a podcast on holidays and what we said, one, a key message from that was, this was for a sun holiday, by the way, it wasn't for, a, for Christmas. But the drink and the sweets, when you come back from your holidays, it's still going to be there, right? It's still 
in January, they're not going to go away. They're still going to be there. So you don't have to go mad at Christmas just because it's Christmas, right? Finding that nice sweet spot where you're not depriving yourself of the experience. You're not trying to lose fat on Christmas or anything like this. But you're also conscious of the fact that I don't want to have too much work for myself in terms of putting on an enormous amount of fat in January. If that is something that you care about and you feel is, is helpful to you and you, you don't care about it too much. Um, but then, as I say, it's, it's finding that sweet spot, essentially, where it's like you're getting, you're getting the best of both worlds. You accept the fact that weight gain is going to occur. You're still engaging in your health habits as much as possible but you're enjoying the experience of Christmas, the food, the festivities, the time with family, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and that's kind of where I sort of look at it. And then whenever January comes, all good. We're kind of back to maybe being a little bit more diligent with our health habits, maybe doing a little bit more exercise, being a little bit more, or sorry, including a little bit less processed food and alcohol in the diet. If you feel like, right, okay, I've added an extra three or four pounds of fat from the, from the festivities. So that's the way I look at it for most of my clients, you know. I really like that. It's, it's as though you're accepting the Christmas period is going to be a different time for your nutrition, but you commit to still, you know, uh, applying a bit of moderation and uh, mm -hmm. you're being flexible sure. as well. You're not being rigid saying, oh, it's December. You know, that means that I have to drink a lot and I have to eat a lot. It's like, no, I, you know, I might drink a lot some days, but other days I might not. And yeah, that's, that's a great point to, to finish on, Dean. Do you have anything you want to mention? Uh, any projects or anything coming up in, in the pipeline or just any links or place you want to show um, uh, not nothing in particular i suppose uh if you guys want to follow me on instagram it's at dean dot macaloon m-c-a-l-o-o-n um you can follow us at triage method as well um if you're interested in, in in online coaching um you can check out the triage method website um if you want to work with me if you like what I said in, in the podcast, if you didn't, if you didn't find me totally repulsive, <laughs> um, if you potentially wanted to, to do a bit of work with me, you can, you can find the nutrition coaching section on the triage method website. You can work with myself or Brian, um, who's on your podcast recently uh, there, or if you want full online coaching with Gary or Patty or Nicola or Sheen, um, that's on the triage method website as well. Um, but yeah, no, just, uh, I suppose if you, you want to, have a chat with me or if you want to engage with my content i have my own podcast youtube videos all that type of stuff instagram is the best place it's the epicenter for all that um quite happy to, to have a chat with people um you know if you have any questions for me anything with regards to anything i've talked to, talked about in this podcast or any questions for me in general or with regards to the content on instagram i'm always quite happy to answer shoot me a message on instagram and uh, yeah that's it uh, thanks very much for having me ross it was a good chat it was a talk for a couple of hours but uh, better keep it as succinct as possible <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll keep it to the point and i can attest to everything you said there you're very uh, very friendly very open to to talk noi um so thanks very much and uh, we'll talk again soon awesome thanks very much ross